Man, I get heated in this one. Hard not to get riled up about this, especially especially with very little sleep. And with the world, the world has basically lost its mind. But, in that there exists a feedback loop. A network effect on a sound monetary system. An open standard. A censorship-resistant network and a neutral transfer of value system that is available everywhere on Earth, and it rests in the center of a storm of collapsing trust, institutional reputation, political turmoil, increasing controls, sanctions, and arbitrary exercising of power. While the problems mount, their solution sits right in front of us. Today, we are talking about Bitcoin domino theory. Get ready. It's time for a Guy's Take episode. What is up, guys? Welcome back to the show. This is Bitcoin Audible, and I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And we have little Rad Swan sleeping right here, the baby who's listened to bit more about Bitcoin than any other baby you know, co-host to Bitcoin Audible. We are just hanging out. We are continuing today's episode I want to go through, I want to keep going through the last year or so of major developments and things that have happened in Bitcoin and the kind of expansion of the fundamentals. And more importantly, or more specifically, I want to talk about the political side of things. What's happened with governments, what's happened with the geopolitical environment and the macro finance environment, um, uh, what's going on with treasuries, what's going on with the petrodollar, how these things affect Bitcoin and how Bitcoin has slowly kind of worked its way into that stage. Um, and, uh, and also a lot of the things that have been going on with mining, because there's a ton of really amazing stuff to unpack there. So yesterday was just kind of a precursor. It was kind of laying the groundwork for what's going on with merchant adoption, with some of the major cultural uh, adoption and power of Bitcoin, of the ethos and the, the Bitcoin idea. And then also kind of the big picture view of where I think we are in Bitcoin's development and both from uh, network adoption cycles uh, as well as just kind of like the infrastructure and where I think the, the system is in the context of what roles I think it will serve. So before we get into it, before we get into the Bitcoin domino theory and uh, a fun idea that I want to preface this episode with, Let's just take a second to thank the sponsors that make this show possible. And our sponsors right now who make this show what it is and provide me with, I mean, they're literally my favorite Bitcoin services and products are the BitBox 2 Keeps my shit safe, keeps my Bitcoin secure and easy to get to. Swan Bitcoin that stacks every week for me. So no matter what I'm doing, I mean, I can run over there and smash by a lot more, but I am always stacking Bitcoin. And then, of course, Fold. 
my debit card, my bank account that pays me sats, that gives me Bitcoin back on everything I do. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a hell of a combination of services. And honestly, you don't need much else. Check them all out at guyswan.com. So the first thing I want to preface this episode with is something I like to think of as the Bitcoin domino theory. So the domino theory was actually like a really ridiculous uh, warmongering uh, excuse or theory proposed during the Vietnam War or to get us into the Vietnam War. And the idea was that if Vietnam, it was, it was basically, you know, justifying interventionism is that if Vietnam goes communist, well, then the domino theory, the, the you know, countries around Vietnam, they're going to go communist and then everybody around them is going to go communist and everybody in the whole world is going to go communist. And, you know, if America doesn't immediately go to this nation that nobody knew two weeks ago uh, and nobody cares about, nobody has any idea what's going on, if we don't intervene, if we don't kill lots and lots of people over in this other country and institute regime change, well, then obviously the whole world will be communist. In that context, it was a very stupid idea. But I think the reason is, is because it was misapplying network theory to something that was not a network. That communism, like, like we're talking about competing communist factions, right? Like communist countries aren't just, all, they don't all get along. In fact, it's like, it's like dictators. They're, you know, one authoritarian state is explicitly at odds with another authoritarian state because it's a, a challenge to their supremacy over a different group of people. The goal of totalitarianism isn't to share power with lots of other people that also like power, it's to be the one that has all the power. So they're necessarily at odds with each other. So, in, and the idea of one country going communist and then all the other countries are going to go communist is the idea that there's this network effect that, you know, somehow they're going to get along better because they're communists uh, rather than, you know, of some sort of republic or free country. And that's not the only reason it's stupid, but there's that's a major reason why the domino effect, there was no real domino effect, um, is because there's no feedback loop, there's no incentive structure that would, that would necessarily reinforce that loop of ever-expanding communism. Whereas it's different when you're talking, in the context of a network effect, hey buddy, hey. But when you're talking about a network effect, the network does get more valuable as more people come on board. So when your neighbor to your right adopts a telephone and your neighbor to your left adopts a telephone, you are more likely to go get a telephone because now you can talk with both of your neighbors. And you have this domino effect where as more and more dominoes fall, it's hitting more and more dominoes as, you know, as the, the cascade continues and expands. Um, and you see this throughout the network effect idea. Now, monetary network effects, which we've talked about a lot on this show, are even stronger because you can be a part of multiple communications networks that do not take away from each other. Like I can have a telephone and also have an email address and I'm not, I don't have to explicitly say, I don't have to explicitly throw my phone in the trash because I want an email address. They're not mutually exclusive. Whereas the value, the value held in one monetary medium versus another monetary mediums are explicitly 
or, or value by its nature is explicitly an exclusive thing. It is mutually exclusive. I can't hold the same, you know, thousand dollars or one Bitcoin worth of value in both a Bitcoin and Ethereum waiting to see which ones somebody wants to use. I have to choose one explicitly at the cost of another. And that's why you end up with a global reserve currency system. That's why you end up with this massive coalescing around a dominant monetary medium. And you see this throughout history. And when two monetary mediums clash, the harder, the sounder money eventually wins out through this sort of domino effect of the one that has the higher assurances becoming even more accepted, becoming even more uh, appealing, and having even greater assurances the more that those people around you adopt that one. So as there begins to get momentum for one potential monetary medium, it cascades, it feeds back on itself. And, and I think we just squeezed in, we just watched a year, a year and a half of the first real political dominoes begin to fall, begin to tip over. And the institutions that we're talking about here, when we're talking about governments and you know treasuries and like all of these things, we're talking about things that fall very, very slowly. So this is not like something that you know one country adopts it and then the next week there's five countries and the next week there's 40 and then there's 100, then it's the whole world. You know, these, these institutions, they necessarily move very slow. Um, and not to mention that the mental block, the mental association with a monetary good, it's, it's much like speaking a language when it comes to familiarity. You know, the, the idea of something having value or being associated with the value of something, I mean, it's like, it's like measuring between inches and centimeters. Like how long, if you've used inches and feet and ounces, you know, all these, you've used the traditional measurements throughout your entire life, how difficult is it to switch to centimeters, kilograms in weight, kilometers per hour? I mean, I've had the stupid little kilometers per hour thing on my speedometer for God knows how long. I still don't have an association with it. I mean, it's not like I try, but you know, like if, if I was, of course, if somebody like put signs on the road and it was all kilometers per hour, I would slowly begin to get a feel of each individual speed. You know, if you ask me now, how fast is 55 miles an hour or 70 miles an hour? I have this sensation. I have this idea of 70 miles an hour is fast, you know, I would never do that on like a small road. But if you do the same thing about 70 kilometers per hour, I'm like, eh, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't really have an association. I was like, what is that, 40 miles an hour? I go back to converting it to that thing that I have an association with, I have a feeling about or um, experience with, so to speak. Value works that same way. That's why when... Whenever you get into an argument or whatever on Twitter and you say like, oh, somebody um, is using Bitcoin for money. It was like, you can't do that. How do you measure its value? You have to compare it to dollars. It's like, well, you moron. That's like saying that you can't use kilometers because you're only used to miles per hour. Like it, it's, it's a means of it's simply an association. It's the fact that you can't imagine anything other than your frame of reference and your associations as being the standard. The simple fact of the matter is, is that the standard of fiat is unreliable. We just don't have anything to compare it to. We don't have anything that serves the role well enough 
to become its own association, uh, to, to essentially replace the, what fiat does. Um, and obviously, the fiat networks are massive. They're way bigger. The dollar network, in the context of adoption of the feedback loop, is so much bigger than any other network. But we're watching it fall apart. We're watching it be competed against. And that's why, you know, something happened very recently. Um, it's like yesterday or the day before is the BRICS countries, India, China, Russia, um, uh, South, uh, South Africa. Like these countries are getting dead. They're trying to create their own world reserve currency. They are trying to challenge the current Western dominant uh, uh, monetary structure. And they know. They're not, they're not stupid. They know that this is the time to attack. And that's also a major reason why I think Bitcoin has such a unique position and, such, and is in such a unique place in its own maturity while all of this is happening. So the mining decentralization, the availability, the services, and the, the state of the software and the network of the Lightning Network and the Bitcoin stack, all of these things play into the fact that Bitcoin can play a bigger role. It can now actually fulfill its place in this, this whole political inter, uh, international struggle between these currencies. And, and Bitcoin has this neutral place. So uh, let's go ahead and get into kind of what's been going on in the last year with that to kind of like set us up of this idea that there is a Bitcoin domino theory. There is a network effect for the money and the network of Bitcoin. So one of the things we just have to talk about is the breaking down of the petrodollar system. And this, you know, goes back to what I was just talking about with the BRICS countries trying to create their own reserve currency. That's a much more recent develop development. I heard about this, I don't know, just a few days ago. But really kind of, I feel like the straw that broke the camel's back were the sanctions on Russia and the, everything that's going on with the Russia-Ukraine war. Because essentially the world reserve currency and the, the monetary backstop, the monetary infrastructure of the Western nations, um, well, really of the globe, which is run by the United States, like the dollar is the infrastructure. That's one of the things that's so important to remember is that the infrastructure itself is, is kind of the currency, right? Like because the entire network is permissioned it's it's an entirely permissioned financial infrastructure like like every everything that is owned in the in the legacy financial system in the global financial infrastructure right now is explicitly at the permission of someone else like it is it is a 100% authority based system none of the value is actually the value it's just a degree a series of trusts on top of trust of some institution that supposedly has, has something of value at the end of it. But most of those quote-unquote assets are even virtual. They're just, they're just currency units, which are a debt and obligation of a country that can just refuse to pay. And that, that trust will break down very, very quickly. Like It's critical that something like that actually behave neutrally specifically when you're talking about large countries like major export nations, uh, like Russia like exports and produces an unbelievable amount uh, of oil. Um, China is another great example that we've had like a lot of uh, heightened 
conflict or pressures, political pressures with. And, you know, they how safe do they feel in the treasuries that they hold? And they've been trying to stop and then slowly divest themselves of U.S. treasuries since like 2014 was the last time they added U.S. treasuries to uh, to their country's balance sheet. But Russia was cut off. This this neutral, this global reserve, I mean, it's obviously not neutral, but obviously its its role is supposed to be. It's supposed to be the thing that all of the modern, all the the global trade uh, circles and the modern countries are able to rely on was used as a weapon. That permission was used against Russia for the purpose of political control. And it does not matter why or under what circumstances. It, it's irrelevant to whether or not it's justified. I don't care. I'm not going there. But the point is, is that the financial, the global reserve system proved its lack of neutrality proved that for many nations across the globe, many powerful and extremely high productive nations and growing nations cannot rely on anything that they own within that system. Like the dollars simply won't move because they need permission from a dollar bank in order to do so. So they were just confiscated. Like, you just sign a piece of paper, and none of it belongs to them anymore. That is really what started this, I feel like. I mean, granted, there's been a progression, a trend toward here for decades and decades, and, you know, things going wrong, and the coming credit crisis. Like, all of this is roped together, but that feels like the point where it broke. Because what happened was Russia immediately started requiring, as a response, you know, the, the Russian ruble collapsed like 50% in a couple of days. Like it was crazy and chaotic for a little bit there. And, but then immediately what happened is Russia just used, they basically used the petrodollar idea against everyone else. They said, okay, well, we are one of the world's largest producers and exporters of oil, period. The dollar has been the currency of choice for oil across the globe. Mostly it essentially because of the petrodollar agreement, because of Saudi Arabia and the OPEC nations and the requirement, the agreement that they will only accept dollars for oil. And thus, Russia, China, all of these countries have used the dollar for that reason. It is that the, the one token that you need to get oil. Russia said, we're done. If you've confiscated our assets, if the dollar system no longer works for us, well, then we will take our value out of the dollar. And what actually, and by requiring everyone else to use rubles to buy dollars from Russia, excuse me, use rubles to buy oil from Russia, the European Union, like countries in Europe that are explicitly saying we're going to sanction and we're attacking Russia are now having to buy Russian currency. They're having to buy rubles in order to get the oil from Russia. And they are still having to buy Oil from Russia, they don't have a choice. They're going to freeze to death if they don't. All of these countries, like Germany especially, Germany is now more reliant on coal than it was like 10 to 20 years ago because of all the solar and wind they've put in. Their, their attempt to go green has made them dependent on Russia, uh, completely weak as, as an as a energy producer, as, as, as an energy entity. Like they're just totally dependent on everybody around them and having to lean on the dirtiest form of energy possible to make up for their garbage infrastructure 
And now they're stuck supporting Russian currency and making them strong just to keep the lights on, just to keep the heat on so that nobody freezes to death this winter. Way to go, Germany. They shut down nuclear plants for this. And Russian rubles are one of the only currencies that got stronger this past year. After taking that massive dip, it skyrocketed right back up. And the U.S. dollar saw 8 to 10% inflation, which is really, realistically, 15%, maybe even upwards of 20%, depending on your metric. And, you know, whether you're using shadow stats or you're using the 80s metric, obviously they just keep changing that uh, to make it look, make it benefit them and uh, the political apparatus. So how well did those sanctions work, huh? Doesn't seem like it really, really did anything in our favor. But by doing so, this, they're never going to go back. They're not going to jump back on the dollar train. Like, the, the, the dollar train is headed to the cliff. Like, like, it's just, its days are numbered at this point because it cannot be the backstop. It cannot be the reserve for a whole series, for basically China, for Russia, for India. These countries know that they're not on good terms with the United States. And if their actions... Their military action, I mean, China has, like I said, has been trying to do this since 2014, is to basically decrease their dependence on the dollar, or more specific, U.S. treasuries. And, you know, they basically called the U.S. bluff and, you know, took over Hong Kong. It's very, very possible they do the same thing with Taiwan. Uh, and, you know, this is actually in line with something that I talk about a lot. Like, this is such an interesting... I mean, kind of horrible, but nonetheless, like, fascinating from a historical perspective is everything that's unfolding right now. As I said, when Bitcoin grows to a point that the U.S. government or major Western nations will either want to attack it or want it to stop, like, they're essentially getting to a place where they're feel feeling threatened by it, they're going to have their hands full with 10,000 other things. And that's exactly what we're seeing. The political narratives are breaking down. The cohesion in the West is absolutely falling apart. And in doing so, the, the left in particular, but basically both the, the political establishment, which includes the left and the right, like the idea that this is some left and right thing when both sides are horrible embarrassments, and they're both totalitarian in their own sense, this, this stupid paradigm is actually breaking down and the establishment narrative is being mocked. It's being looked at as ridiculous and they're an entire subsection of population, an entire culture that's growing up realizing what a facade this whole thing like is, like, like how utterly incompetent they are. And the trust in our institutional systems is at the lowest it's like ever been in like 50 years or some shit. I can't remember exactly the statistic, but... It's incredibly low. And for good reason. We're going through one of the worst credit crises in damn near 100 years. Uh, we have, you know, political unrest. We have lockdowns. And I think that was really like, it's, it's this desperate attempt to, I, I say this a lot too. I, I love this analogy because I think it's such a good example of what's happening in the collective sense. Is that when an abusive relationship gets to the point where it's obvious that the relationship is falling apart, that it has no future. The abuse gets the worst it's ever been. Like, they get desperate. They're clinging onto their power and their relevance, and then we're mocking them. And so it's 
they they just have to get overly aggressive and everything is a threat because they feel it slipping away. And maybe, maybe they have a good story or a good reason as to why they think that's occurring, but they're trying to revamp everything, right? They're trying to build back better and the great reset. They're desperate to make sure that when the old system collapses, there's a lot of people that know that this is happening and that this, there's no turning back. It just is going to shift. We are going to be in a new monetary order in 10 to 20 years, hands down, no questions asked. We're watching it take place. When that happens, they desperately, desperately want to hold the reins of the new system. So they're all competing and they're vying for their position in this. And this is why all of the political uh, strings, all of the, everybody's boundaries are being tested here. And we're going to continue to see that. It's going to accelerate. And that's what a lot of this stuff is. And I think we're we're constantly getting these little ticks, these these check marks where the dollar is not doing well. The dollar is still being run to for uh, a subset of currency collapsing nations because it remains the the most fluid and the most liquid global infrastructure. But at the exact same time, we're looking at like kind of fundamental pieces trying to step back. There's still a lot of surface dollar use, but a lot of the base dollar use, a lot of the base treasury purchases are, are basically halting or turning into cells or uh, basically having to be propped up. This is why we're seeing the bond markets go, uh, go crazy. This is why the Fed is having to raise rates in the middle of a recession. And the fact that we're clearly going into a deep recession, arguably depression, but they don't have a choice because the dollar itself is getting weak. I mean, go fill up a tank of gas. And so many credit markets are just cracking. Like the housing market is like we're at like 5% or 6% mortgage now, uh, mortgage rates now. And I mean, it's barely hanging on. And I think it will be until the repo market like truly freezes up, um, which it hasn't yet. But the Fed essentially has to reverse course or... I mean, I mean, maybe they don't, maybe they don't. It's funny because like you go back and look at the seventies and you, you look at what they did, they could get incredibly hawkish and just let the thing collapse, let the financial markets collapse and the stock market and equities and housing and basically anything paid for by loan. They can let all of those, that economic activity collapse in an effort to save the dollar. But the question is, do they basically shoot themselves in the head politically or shoot themselves in the head economically like that's kind of the question um and then kind of with the narrative breaking down at the same time their cohesion around actually getting anything done is falling apart and then arguably the most comical thing about all of it is what a facade the establishment is anyway like the staggering corruption that you know we have congressional investigations about January 6th with a bunch of morons who walked into the Capitol building and took selfies at the podium and like this is some horrible Travis like it's such a joke while at the exact same time we don't get a single name on Jeffrey Epstein's flight list we don't get any we get nothing we get nothing but pages and pages of inked out names, records, evidence, all of it, the entire thing. The court case was a black box. Oh, but we get 24-7 live stream five months of Johnny Depp and, uh, and Amber Heard. 
and Julian Assange is still rotting in a cement box and has now been extradited. The agreement has been made to extradite him to the U.S. to be tried for treason, for espionage, as a journalist, while nothing, absolutely nothing he has published has ever been refuted as false. WikiLeaks is the only journalistic institution on the planet that has never had to retract a story because it was a lie. But the people who committed the murder, who gunned down citizens and laughed about it, none of them were punished. Julian Assange, for a decade, has been in a cement box for telling us about it. For telling about how we li were lied into a war that killed hundreds of thousands of people. While the exact same people who did that are still sitting in Congress and voting on shit that is destroying people's lives. That is running this country. We are being so gaslit. It's incredible. And the corruption is deep to its core. Like the Jeffrey, Jeffrey Epstein... It was literally a billionaire sex trafficking pedophile ring with hundreds of people. Some of the most powerful political figures in the world that was, act, that was literally part of a pedophilia blackmail ring. And the reason we don't know all of their names is because they're still there. None of them should get the benefit of the doubt. They are all corrupt criminals until we see that list. They have all been part of the sex trafficking ring until we see that list. The fact that we have not seen that list is an embarrassment. It should, make, it should shake your faith in the entire Western governmental system. It is not because of the crimes. It is because of who is on the list that we don't get to see it. All while a truly senile old man is the hood ornament for all of this. It's almost funny that, like, it's so obvious that Biden isn't running anything. And they try so hard to make it look like he is. It's such a bad commercial. Did you see the video of the... Like the, there was like this big political like party, you know, like a cocktail hour sort of thing where Biden walks around like, like looking like he's lost and he's trying to like get Obama's attention. He's trying to talk to people and just nobody's like even looking at him. Like he's just kind of standing there, like kind of wandering around. I guess that's really kind of what I feel like he's just being used. He's just a puppet. This, this is the environment we're in. This is the state of the political world. This is the... And also remember, too, that, like, the Jeffrey Epstein thing is actually a really good example. And Assange actually is as well because they're such blatant examples of how corrupt the system is. But what's funny is that it's the same people prior to their exposures, right? Like, it, it's the, it, kind of the good old boys club that was, you know, it was Bush's, right? It, the, 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 it was the Bush. It was Bush in the 80s, and it was the second Bush um, when we went to Iraq. And it's been the Clintons for, you know, 30 years. Like, it's kind of this, this club of people. But suddenly, 
suddenly things are getting exposed. Like it wasn't even questioned then, they just kind of had this power and this political cohesion that the narrative was true and everything was great and, you know, the political apparatus was somehow working for us. And that's all that really broke down. It was always true that they weren't. They didn't care. It's just that, like, when things are going nicely and the, you know, you're, you're on the up, uphill part of the scam, then, okay, you know, everybody just kind of buys into it. It's like no big deal. It's when things start falling apart that these corrupt, the corruption and the crimes and some of these things, like, get exposed. And you have these tools like, you know, cryptography and just the nature of privacy and information on the Internet is what led to WikiLeaks being possible. And, you know, people forget how much that has changed things in like just 15 or 20 years. WikiLeaks is a fundamentally unique thing in history. The idea of a sort of almost like a crowdfunded spy agency to reveal the crimes and expose the unbelievable corruption in our governmental institutions. And then Jeffrey Epstein being exposed, like uh, the, you know, the exposure of all the, the, both the pedophilia throughout Hollywood, like the information is getting free. The, the Weinsteins of the world are slowly falling apart and they've been doing this stuff for decades. For decades, they just thought they were invincible, that they couldn't be exposed. They, so much so that they basically do it, did it out in the open. I mean, the Epstein's plane was referred to as the Lolita Express. Like we're supposed to pretend that this isn't this isn't being that this isn't them blatantly doing this in the open, like b beating their chest that they can pull this off and nothing happens to them. It's all about power, but it's falling apart. All of these narratives are cracking at the same time. The petrodollar is cracking. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's gradually then suddenly. All these things build up, and then the correction must happen. And into this environment, into this space and this state of the world, exists Bitcoin. Exists this TikTok next block, reliable foundation to transfer value that is volatile, but actually is not as volatile as a lot of the fiat currencies out there these days. And is volatile specifically because of the incredible growth and shifts in the network itself. The network effect of the asset and of the, the exchange of the settlement network. The downturn in the purchasing power of Bitcoin comes after orders of magnitude increases in its value. Uh, basically a 10x in 2020 uh, through early 2021 in the price, and then a collapse back down by half of that or a little bit more. While somewhere around, I kind of did some simple math on it, about half, a little over half a billion people, about 600 million people, have been living under 30% inflation so far in 2022. And this is inflation that won't go back the other direction. This is just flat debasement. This is their currency doing nothing but falling, not going up by 10x and then back down by 60%. In Argentina, Venezuela, Nigeria, Zimbabwe, uh, Suriname, Sri Lanka, Angola, Turkey, Lebanon, Estonia, Syria, Iran, these countries, 
they're not, their citizens are not looking at Bitcoin going, oh God, this will never work. 600 million people look at Bitcoin and see stability. And that environment is going to get worse for fiat. We're going to very quickly look at a billion, two billion people just in sheer purchasing power, not talking about permission networks, not talking about censorship resistance, not talking about sanctions, not talking about political, lack of political neutrality, or even political animosity. We're not talking about any of that, which in itself is a billion population or more problem. Just talking about the value of it. Bitcoin is increasingly going to look better and better, while at the same time, our, our political uh, environment is going to become so contested and so risky, so high risk, where people don't know where to turn, don't know what's reliable, because everything's permissioned and trust is breaking down. Bitcoin, regardless of the purchasing power in the short term, is going to look even better just from that perspective because it's clearly politically neutral. Um, and it's just, like I said, and this is something that I felt like was going to happen for you know a long time, and it just seems like all the trends are this direction, is that when, as we get to the point, like the European Union just dropped, just dropped a really, really invasive travel rule on Bitcoin and crypto transactions where extensive KYC AML, everybody's got to record all of the data and verify all of the identities. Anything over a thousand euro um, must be verified uh, and you must save, like record and, uh, you know, send to the regulatory institutions the addresses of quote unquote unhosted wallets. And you have to excuse, you have to give a reason for why you're sending it to an unhosted wallet and prove that it's yours, that you own it. Like, I mean, the, this is literally one of the most absurd things. Oh, but don't worry. They've got robust data protection, which is a, a, just such a hilarious oxymoron that they are creating the most vulnerable, high risk environment for taking and uh, making vulnerable your most important identifying information, keeping all of this shit sharing it around with institutions, sharing it with regula regulators, making honeypot after honeypot on server after server, and then telling you you're going to have safe data. They've created the environment where that is impossible. Impossible. But they're just going to hand wave it into existence because they wrote those words into the same bill and they're just that fucking stupid. As we get to this place in the transition, they have their hands full with everything else. They have a million different fronts to fight on. And they're only going to get worse. They're only going to get more contested. They're going to be more people pushing back and more people pressing at the boundaries. There's going to be a lot of black swans during this where they, people, they, like, political institutions that you would never even think would take the opportunity to do something are going to. They're going to see their opening uh, those that have been irrelevant or quiet or like there, I swear, I think there's in the next four to five years, there's going to be a lot of moves like that where people are just like, holy crap, where the hell did this come from? And I kind of think El Salvador is actually a really good example of something exactly like that. Who was talking about El Salvador a year and six months ago? Like who I, I haven't even, I hadn't even thought about El Salvador in ages. And what did they do? What did they do? 
They spoke up and they took a risk and they decided that they were going to invest in a future and they were basically stamping or planting their flag on a world that doesn't look like the world does today. On a monetary structure that could be completely and entirely different and is not just them being roped into the Great Reset. Not being roped into whatever it is that the powers that be, the establishment as it is, wants them to then be on. They see... They see the writing on the wall. They see the cracks breaking down. They see the lack of uh, robustness and longevity. They see the end, the death of the current structure as it is, and an opportunity for something that might actually be better rather than just a different version of the same old thing with all of the debts while paying for the debts of the old one. Honestly, honestly, Bitcoin is an adversarial network. It's an adversarial monetary asset. It is the BitTorrent of money. And as I've talked about in the principle of anti-fragile things, anti-fragile things get stronger when they are contested, when they are hit with stressors and stimuli. In fact, in the absence of stressors, in the, ad, in, in the absence of adversaries, anti-fragile things stagnate. It's not merely that they, they grow or become stronger with stressors. It's that in the absence of them, they die. They must, they must have the stress in order to move, in order to correct, in order to grow. I cannot imagine an environment that's more primed for Bitcoin than this one. If there is anything that will test Bitcoin's resolve and Bitcoin's purpose... It's this environment. It's almost, it's, it's this weird, man, it's this weird, like, almost serendipity that Bitcoin has matured to the place that it is right now while the state of the world and the collapse of the financial system and the, the foundations, the breaking foundations of the petrodollar system and the splintering and attempts to rebuild the world monetary structure and that shift is all happening while a neutral, internet-native, totally decentralized, hard digital asset is coming into its own, is becoming a global mover of value, a globally and politically relevant institution. It's really crazy. It's really, really crazy. Um... You know what, let's take a break right here. I'm going to go uh, uh, hang for a minute with Rad, and uh, we'll, we'll pause for our sponsor and then get back into this. I've kind of taken a huge rant, a <laughs> huge tangent here. We'll get back on track with, uh, with uh, some things that I really, really want to go over. The Bitbox Hardware Wallet, an ASMR journey. A digital vault for your digital keys. It's safe, intuitive, it's easy, a baby can do it. With streamlined Bitcoin-only firmware, choose purity, sleek, black, minimalist design, look at that body, USB-C, feel the connection, no buttons, it just knows when you touch it, rounded corners, Desktop and mobile apps. Plug me in anywhere. 
multi-sig ready. Let's touch our keys together. Get your Bitcoin off exchanges. Now your keys, dumbass. And give them the protection they deserve. Put your keys in my box. It's time to become Bitcoin sovereign. Or have fun staying poor. Get 5% off with code GUY. Who's read more about Bitcoin? Go to guyswan.com slash bitbox. Mm, bitbox. And get the digital vault for your digital keys. It's a secret. Your private keys deserve it. You know you want it. So I actually have a video version of this ad that I was just using as an opportunity to explore DaVinci Resolve and Fusion, and I was having a whole lot of fun with it. And so I just kept rolling with it until I had kind of produced something that I really enjoyed uh, and I think is hilarious. Um, I'm a bit of a dork, but, you know, it is what it is. I'm going to be posting the video version of this on Twitter, and you'll be able to find it at guyswan.com memes if you want to check it out. I'm pretty proud of it. So check it out if you're interested. So it was just over a year ago now that El Salvador made Bitcoin legal tender. Um, and, you know, it's so funny in retrospect, like looking back how, I don't know, like almost not that important. Like, like it's so easy and quick to take that for granted. Um, but to really think about what that means. And, you know, there's, there's an element, too, of how El Salvador does with this might affect the speed of the domino theory um, and how it unfolds, the network effect of Bitcoin, specifically in the political sphere, uh, in the next few years. If, let's say, the rest of this year pays off incredibly well for El Salvador, um, especially in kind of a tumultuous currency environment, uh, I think that will be aggressively good for Bitcoin in the midterm. But there's an element of, do we want that yet? Because if, I mean, I won't be, I won't be super upset either way outside of the fact that it's, would be su it would suck for El Salvador to kind of you know, have it go bad for El Salvador specifically. But the good thing is, is they're using a lot of it as infrastructure to just move fiat money, uh, to move dollars, to get, um, you know, remittance payments. Uh, and what's funny is that there's no, this is, that's one of those things that the actual investment in the currency is largely irrelevant. You know, we go back to yesterday's, or yesterday's, the last episode talking about the peanut and the the Jack Mallers analogy or whatever, how like as long as you have liquidity, it doesn't quite matter what the value. If you don't even want to hold the Bitcoin, you can still use it to facilitate payments, to transfer the value in an internationally neutral way and on infrastructure that can't be stopped, that isn't permissioned. That in and of itself cannot fail just because Bitcoin price is fluctuating. That is not actually affected really by it. It's when, you know, uh, Nayib Bukele uh, puts it on the treasury balance sheet, right? That's the one that can go sideways. Or if somebody leverage trades it 
um, and you know, you know, borrows a bunch of money against something like as as collateral or whatever to then invest in Bitcoin. Those are the things that can blow up and basically scare certain institutions or certain political organizations away from getting involved because they see someone else get hurt. Um, and I think that's a lot of what's happening to Bitcoin specifically because of what people see in crypto. So much of normie land just looks at Bitcoin and they see crypto. It's all just one big ecosystem. And it's why it's so important to try to distance ourselves from the pump and dump to, to put a gap between Bitcoin and quote unquote crypto, because it's such a mess over there. And I feel like Crypto is such a exaggerated, uh, a great example of kind of the end game of fiat equity trading and TradFi is that essentially they've they've recreated the casino, the the gambling apparatus, the speculative apparatus of the stock market without any of the equity. They just decided, well, we're going to leave all the actual value out of this thing, and we're just going to build the structures of arbitrage, of token printing, of yield creation and locking up to, uh, locking up coins and creating uh, options contracts and we're going to just trade these things back and forth and the fact that we have these things will be the value that we have that we trade them with but it's a circular logic like it's valuable because you can use it to trade what can you use it to trade the token that's valuable because you're trading it and it just it's so so obnoxious in a lot of ways. And maybe there's still something over there. I don't really care. It's not, that's not really the point. I, I've been, I don't have the time to go through 10,000 scams to find one thing that might be a viable project of some sort with real equity in something. I, I don't care. I don't care. It can't be that good. The, the money itself, sound, secure, independent, decentralized money is the biggest problem we have. Who cares? Who cares about some crypto token that might have some utility in God knows what. Like, if I'm wrong and bananas on the blockchain is like a real thing, I could give a shit if I missed out on that investment. But going back to El Salvador, is it's incredible to see the momentum as Bitcoin has made, its, made itself aware in the political sphere. There's a lot, particularly there's a lot of small politicians. There's a lot of... and. and I mean, not necessarily small, but small is in the context of like the hierarchy of um, political zones of jurisdictions. Like Mayor uh, Mayor Suarez of Miami has, uh, you know, really gone in and backed Bitcoin and crypto too, and just tried to make you know he wants to make it the crypto capital of of the uh, of the United States or something like that, but. Regardless, is you're seeing this is actually one of those things that's great about Bitcoin is that the smaller entities can embrace it. It is truly grassroots. It's truly grassroots. It's going to grow from the bottom up just because of its structure, because it benefits the smaller entities more than it does the larger entities, and therefore, kind of by their nature, by the set of the the series of incentives that are at play, the big institutions are going to be the last ones on board. Um, and that's a great thing considering how much more momentum and buying power they have. We want them to take a long time. We want to see smaller countries get on board first, particularly those small countries that have just been under the thumb of some currency or some Western government that has treated them like a monetary colony for 50 years. Like the African CIFA nations and the, you know, the, the French 
control that have just been completely, completely controlling their monetary system and forcing them to to pay the cost of French monetary policy and invest in French treasuries and hold their money with French banks all the while giving them loans and essentially buying them into uh, into servitude is that, you know, a loan is not something like this. This is something that this just drives me crazy is the the twisting of the language of our financial environment and monetary system is that we have this idea that the government lowering interest rates and allowing everybody to get a loan and helping banks to give more people loans is a good thing and that a loan is a good thing to have that you have been given something by someone issuing money into existence and loaning it to you when we're talking about a monetary system that issues the money as a loan which means that you have been given a liability you were quote unquote given a promise, a contract that said that you have to pay something to somebody else. And because it was issued into existence, it was money that that somebody else didn't have. That is not a good thing. The West giving loans to African countries and doing it at specific interest rates and tied like with all these political strings attached are tools of dependence. They're tools of servitude. They are not help. They're means of control. And I think we will slowly see specifically smaller countries that have been stuck in these situations for, I mean, indefinitely, just as long as they've been there, they've been subservient to somebody else. And I think they're going to begin to wake up and they're going to see the value it won't take much explaining for them to understand the value proposition of a neutral, independent international currency. And, you know, Jameson Lopp talks about this too, and it's kind of something that's been going on for, or, or has been discussed openly for years and years, that we will likely see smaller countries. We will likely see a contingent of South America, of Africa, of Asia, of these countries that aren't in you know, are in areas that aren't quote-unquote the modern world, aren't the Western world, see the benefits of adopting their own international standard, of having an open source, an open standard international monetary system that they can plug into that nobody can really tell them they can't. And a lot of these countries, even the totalitarian ones, even the ones with like serious dictators, they don't have a lot to lose from the context of a currency war or from, from the context of losing currency control because most of them are already monetary subservient. They're already subject to some Western entity for their financial access, for their connections to the international infrastructure, for you know, their, uh, their access to the Federal Reserve or the SWIFT system for being able to have any dollars. They're stuck in some, you know, IMF loan with a bunch of strings attached, which keeps them in this loop of needing a loan to invest, to pay off the loan, and this cycle of dependence. And their own currency is weak. Their own currency is weak and they don't have much room. They don't have much room to inflate or do anything to control their population. So even, even people who stand to, even authoritarians who stand to lose a lot, also stand to gain a lot. They comparatively have a lot more to gain 
necessarily than to lose because they are already a very, very small fish in a big pond. And those are exactly the sort of countries where the people themselves will be helped the most by the adoption and the access to just such a tool. It's what allows them to, it gives them that window to get out from underneath the thumb of the, of the dictator, of the authoritarian. And specifically, countries like that can also move faster. There's less bureaucracy and red tape. So it's, it's going to be really interesting to watch the next couple of years and see what kind of monetary standard develops in the wake of, or in the, let's say, in the hole left by the petrodollar system as, as it is getting undermined and something is needing to take up the slack. And, you know, on the mining front, this is, as Bitcoin gets tied to the energy sector, it's going to be fascinating to watch how that affects governments and the political sphere as I, I genuinely think Bitcoin mining is going to be a necessary tool for clean energy alternatives and more specifically to actually make our current energy production and the use of our current, current energy production vastly more efficient. And the, the best example uh, that, that I think is going to, I think is going to move very, very quickly is methane flaring. Is, is gas flaring. So there's a company called Crusoe Energy, and they're working now with uh, ExxonMobil is mining, is, is redirecting the flared methane gas and using it to mine. And this is a massive, untapped, and slowly getting tapped energy source that has just been completely thrown away. And what's crazy absolutely crazy is that there have been estimates of the amount of methane gas flared just when mining oil just when mining some other uh you know some other uh resource the amount of methane gas that is flared would would be the would produce the equivalent energy to actually triple the current hash rate of the bitcoin network if all of it was utilized and all of the cost basis of this methane gas, of the energy it produces, is zero dollars. It's trash. It's trash energy that is getting reused, that is making our current energy production more efficient and profitable by taking something that is just being spout off, uh, just being uh, flared off into the atmosphere, and for... Everybody who's worried about the greenhouse gas effect and all of that stuff, it is way much like 30 times the greenhouse gas as CO2. Actually, check that. I think it's somewhere right here. 86. 86 times. That's crazy. You can absorb that much. It's that much more efficient at absorbing heat and the greenhouse effect. But... Basically, there's a lot of estimates and uh, research that have occurred that essentially our production of methane could be far more, uh, far more relevant to the discussion than was previously thought. And that uh, uh, there was actually, there's a quote, and this is from the kind of Crusoe Energy, uh, uh, Crusoe Energy uh, situation. I've got like a bunch of little notes and uh, quotes saved from this. But there was a quote that says the process 
of burning off the flared natural gas, of, of taking the flared natural gas and actually directing it through burning it far more efficiently and, uh, and thoroughly through, through an actual generator actually reduces the CO2 equivalent emissions by about 63% compared to continued flaring. So Exxon is actually using this in the North Dakota region. And uh, since, since Exxon started, uh, uh, Conoco Phillips has started doing it as well in North Dakota specifically. Um, oil companies in Oman have started mining Bitcoin with flared gas. All of these companies are doing this specifically to reduce their greenhouse gases and meet regulatory requirements. Think about this. Think about this. There is an asset that they can redirect energy that they literally threw in the trash before that they can now get paid to utilize where another company comes in and just does it for them. And because of the payment, because of the Bitcoin, uh, the, the energy buyer of last resort that the Bitcoin network is, that, and it does not care, it doesn't need power lines, it doesn't need anything, you just bring, you bring a generator, you bring a, you know, a container with a crap ton of miners, you sit that shit next to the flared, uh, the flared gas, you redirect it into the generator, and you start hashing, and Bitcoin will pay you. All you need is a satellite internet connection. You don't need any sort of infrastructure. You can stick that shit in a metal box in the middle of the desert and it will pay you. And this enables, enables them to meet regulatory demands. Largely onerous and excessive regulatory demands about greenhouse gas emissions. So while uh, the political sphere is desperately trying to push the narrative and make it make it appear or, or equate Bitcoin mining to being horrible for the environment, to being a huge greenhouse gas producer. The exact opposite is, has turned out to be true in practice. That it's specifically being used to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. It's specifically being used to reduce the amount of energy that we throw away. It is specifically taking, making use of all of that energy that we have no other use for and it's making the renewable options that we actually have more viable, even the ones that are not viable at all and suck terribly at scale, like wind and solar, are becoming more profitable and more economically viable because all of their excess unreliable production that produces at the wrong time and when consumers aren't around can actually be sold. It can be sold to Bitcoin. So contrary, to the political lie, Bitcoin is slowly becoming already intertwined in the energy production system, and specifically so, it can meet the demands of the regulatory apparatus. And this is slowly popping up all over the place. You know, uh, geothermal energy is being used in El Salvador, everybody knows about the volcano mining. Um, Kenya, Kenya is actually directing excess geothermal energy to be used for Bitcoin mining, and this all Again, this has all happened basically in the last year, year and, you know, a few months. And it was, what? It wasn't this year, but I guess it was over a year and a half now. But when China banned mining, I mean, I know I brought this up in the last episode, and I brought it up a couple times recently, but still it's just one of the most epic things to me that 
half of the Bitcoin mining, the global Bitcoin mining infrastructure just just bailed on a country, on one of the most powerful countries in the world that banned Bitcoin mining and distributed it all around the world. And I mean, now the U.S. is what, 35%-ish was the last I checked of the global hash rate. Um, and it was very small before while China was upwards of 60%. And now China's like down to 20%. Like the the re-decentralization, the, the continued decentralization of mining has been really, really interesting to watch. And I think people really discount that. Like a, a lot of people want to like will continuously say that, oh, mining is centralized. But look at the trend. Look at the amount of players involved. Look at the distribution of the hash rate. Like if you actually split up the mining pools, like remember mining pools specifically are just websites. They're just a, a place... It's specifically a pool, which means it's it's explicitly a bunch of different miners who have logged into the same computer just to aggregate their hashes. That's all it does. It's not like a bunch of miners in one place. It's a bunch of miners connected to the same server. So it's a website, just like you can log out of the Apple Store or you can log out of YouTube and go log into Facebook or Twitter or something instead. That is the power that a mining pool has. Like people talk about like mining pools being centralized and oh, the government's gonna take over the mining pool. That's like saying the government is gonna take over Twitter and then everybody's just going to have to, nobody will be able to communicate anymore. Like, and they're just gonna go control all communications because they took over Twitter. Just, I just get off of Twitter. Like it just, it, like, it's just one it's a it's one website like it, as if there's not a billion other websites out there or a hundred other different ways to communicate at my disposal within you know three within three feet in any direction of me you can't take over bitcoin by taking over the mining pools unless you do it in secret and nobody ever knows if as soon as anything is visible and it's obvious that something is compromised or the mining pool has a bug all the miners are just going to log out. They can either solo mine or they're going to log into another pool or they're going to get on the P2 pool, whatever it is. But it doesn't stop them from mining and it doesn't control their miners. They're just logged into a website that's aggregating it with other people. And I think it's uh, Slush Pool. I believe it's Slush Pool. And this is actually old now, guy. I guess it was on a piece I read on the show maybe two or three years ago. But, um... But it was still just an incredible chart. Um, it was a pie chart. Uh, for, you're used to seeing, or I'm sure a lot of people have seen the pie chart of like, oh, there's like seven major mining pools that have like 75% or 80% of the network hash rate. Um, Bitcoin, oh, it's so centralized. And then they took one slice of that, the slush pool, and they, slush pool published the makeup of the miners within just their pool and it was incredible it was incredible there were so many slivers of that pie um with so few like really huge entities um there were a lot of big entities but they were so comparatively um big there were just there were just a huge number of them it, it's crazy it looks like this psychotic kaleidoscope rainbow pie chart because there's just so many different slices of this thing and that's one mining pool showing the breakdown of the different physical miners. They're signing in from all over the world. Some of them are behind Tor. Um, some of them are on VPNs. Nobody really knows where any of them are. They're just logging into this website and hashing together. 
So don't let anybody tell you that Bitcoin hashing or Bitcoin mining has gotten more centralized because I've not seen any indication of this. Everything that I have looked at, the Bitcoin network has gotten stronger, Bitcoin hash power and, uh, and mining specifically have gotten way more decentralized and spread out. There is no jurisdiction anymore that has a majority of the network, um, which was rightfully seen as a very potential vulnerability. Um, but that, that potential threat banned Bitcoin mining and solved our problem for us. And there was not a single hiccup on the Bitcoin network as 60% of the global infrastructure that is securing the network packed up shop, uh, you know, got on a ship, put it on a plane, put it on a truck and sent it somewhere else in the world, found a different source of energy, found a different flared methane, uh, you know, company that's trying to meet regulations, found a different, uh, you know, plant that was being shut down, a different geothermal uh, source of energy, set up shop, turned those ASICs back on. And within six months, we had uh, we had crossed the all-time high in hash rate again. And Bitcoin never knew. The network, the network never even, never even had a hiccup. Then I know we talked about this one in yesterday's episode as well. Um, I didn't go deep into it, but the trucker convoy. Man, man, if that was not such an excellent example of the censorship-resistant nature of the value of having of Bitcoin as a hedge against the financial infrastructure against the actual rails by which you make you send money and as those rails become used as a political weapon they become used as a tool of control it will become far more obvious you know those the again the trucker convoy is another great example of people being able to understand its value outside of any fluctuations in the purchasing power it's like sure they're canadian uh loony or whatever, the Canadian dollars um, were, you know, maintained their purchasing power better, but they were completely confiscated. So they didn't maintain their purchasing power because they just vanished. Their accounts were frozen. All of their donations were frozen and confiscated. Um, TD Bank, uh, TD Ameritrade Bank, uh, uh, they froze all the accounts to any of the Canadian protesters. And not because they committed a crime, because the freaking government of Canada made a declared a state of emergency and just took away their right to money just completely deleted them from the access to all of their finances and banking because they dared to speak up against forced vaccinations you think they won't use that against you you think they have any restraint whatsoever we're moving into an era where the value of something that does not have those lunatics in control of it, with their thumb on the button to shut down anybody and everyone they want for no reason, with no precedent. They just declare that now is the time that I'm allowed to do this, and then they do it. Bitcoin in that environment is invaluable, regardless of what the price does in the short term. And I have to say, I've been impressed with the, the push from a number of American political uh, supporters, I guess. Uh, Warren Davidson, Cynthia Lummis, 
Um, there's like uh, I've seen. What is it? Probably like eight or ten, um, uh, congressmen, congresswomen, um, and senators that that have actually made a push to. There's actually a bill, and it's bipartisan too. Um. Uh, that they are attempting to, obviously it hasn't been passed yet, and no idea it's been, you know, in, in flux, and they keep changing it, and I think they've submitted it a couple of times. I, I can't remember exactly the situation. I've done a poor job of keeping up with it. Um, but they're trying to exempt personal and cash-like transactions based in Bitcoin from capital gains to basically make it easy to use so that, so that you don't have to report capital gains on a $2 transaction which technically you're supposed to do now, even though it's stupidly onerous and it would cost more to even police such a thing than anybody would get from tax revenue. You know, what are you going to owe 17 cent in taxes and they're going to go, they're going to send an auditor to you to, <laughs> to, to try to dig through all of your files to figure out which $2, which, which stick of gum and soda can uh, you didn't report your capital gains on. What's funny is that the political system and the regulatory system that keeps these sort of like obnoxiously onerous uh, rules around the use of Bitcoin, around the use of anything, really, only undermines their own uh, authority because they become so onerous to even adhere to that people just don't care and you start to treat them like morons that... They don't have any relevance because it's impossible to even follow the rules. So the rules just become a mockery of the idea of having them in the first place. Like nobody, practically no one, no one that uses Bitcoin is going through and recording every time. Like, you know, like when I send 100 sats to somebody, like I'm not reporting capital gains on 100 sats, but technically... The rule says you're supposed to. Any and all capital gains, if it's a fraction of a fraction of a cent, it's supposed to be reported. And I almost wish I had software that would make that easy just so I could send them, even though my poor tax guy would, he would be very, very sad. And I wouldn't want to put this, put him through this. But I would love to send like hundreds of thousands of transactions to some poor bastard in the IRS who has to sort through all of that and, you know, report capital gains on all of it. I, I would, I would happily pay a little bit more in taxes just to, just to screw somebody over and just to DDoS them with an absolutely insane number of transactions because they've made rules that are so stupid that it's, 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 it's a set of suicidal rules. It's right. Like you get paid less than it takes to deal with the, the reporting requirements that you've set out. So you just end up in a huge situation in this environment where people just don't do it at all. There are so many people in Bitcoin and crypto who haven't been doing this for years. And it will, it's probably going to bite a lot of them in the ass because at some point they're going to like really start cracking down on it. But in the meantime, it's their own fault. And this is something that's really interesting because Russia actually acknowledged this. The Russian... Uh, central bank, man, I can't remember. I was trying to trying to verify exactly which institutions. I think I even brought this up recently. 
um, on the show, and I could not remember. But there was one like financial. I I want to say it was between the central bank and then the treasury in Russia, and one of them said, "Oh, we're going to ban Bitcoin." Uh, and we're going to ban Bitcoin mining and all of this stuff, like as if we're just going to blanket, like shut it down, we're against it. And then the other basically came in and corrected and said, uh, no, that's a terrible idea. What we would end up doing is creating an industry that is completely out from underneath our, out of our purview, that we would not have any rails for control. We would not have any rails to see what was going on. Essentially, they would push this into the black market, which we've seen in a number of different countries. It's like Nigeria. Nigeria is going through awful inflation and a lot of different currency controls and capital controls that are squeezing their population. And they they have the highest per capita adoption of Bitcoin, I think, still in the whole world. And, you know, again, the volatility to them is no... is not at all as big a deal as the fact that they're losing 80% of their value in the Nigerian currency, which is technically worse than that. It's like it's like 13 to 20% per month. It's crazy. And so they're adopting Bitcoin, and Bitcoin is actually a remarkable inflation hedge in that environment, even when it goes down. But Nigeria has banned it. The government of Nigeria has completely banned Bitcoin and they have the highest adoption rate in the world. Now, obviously, that's not indicative of how, you know, when you don't have much financial infrastructure, there's not a whole lot you can do because you're not cutting anybody off from anything. Right. So Western nations, it would not work like that. Like the U.S., if you banned Bitcoin in the U.S. and you shut down all the Bitcoin companies, it would be a nightmare for quite some time. But the thing is, is you would not stop Bitcoin. Bitcoin, the network, would not stop producing blocks. You would not stop a lot of... And as this thing gets more and more international and adopted by more and more smaller countries, this is why I think that's such a beautiful thing. Like when you when you think about the grassroots nature of Bitcoin and the fact that we could end up in a place where a lot of, a lot of smaller countries adopting Bitcoin and using Bitcoin as an international standard, even if they're just moving their own currencies... Or they're moving dollar, like they're moving, uh, you know, some other fiat currency between their nations. I think that is a far, far stronger foundation because any few countries that, you know, get upset or like dictators who want to who start to backtrack and they're like, oh, crap, we started giving our citizens way too much power um, and autonomy. We need to reel this back in. We need to ban it now. Any of those countries that do that an environment where you have many, many smaller countries has hardly any effect. If we're trying to rely on China embracing it or the U.S. embracing it, well, then if they don't or they crack down on it, well, then it's like, oh, we got a really big gain, but it's like this huge centralized dependency. It's like, well, okay, well, now we have this central point of failure. We have this third party where a lot of our value and our infrastructure and everything is reliant on this single jurisdiction. And that's not good. We want it spread out. You know, and there's like entities, like a lot of things that have happened recently or a lot of movement that's happened just on the development front. It's like Galloway, Galloway Money, who uh, built the, I'm pretty sure they built the Bitcoin Beach wallet. Um, and they're kind of pioneering. And there's like a, a bunch of different things actually have happened on this front. Like Sensei is a really cool um, uh, app or, or software to create that, Uncle Jim 
sort of setup where like let's say i could run a wallet like a main wallet and i could have sub wallets for friends and family members or we could have like a multi-sig and you could have like shared custody like it'd be really interesting i, I think that sort of thing is going to be coming back i think we're going to watch the re-decentralization of the financial system into smaller like family units and trusts and um uh you know small cohesive communities and uh groups of people working together to build their own financial products and when you have tools like nunchuck that uh was actually used in the convoy you've got caravan uh from unchained capital you've got these really cool multi-sig uh setups um and all of these hardware wallets that work with it and you know do the the partially signed transactions cold card uh, a bit box like all these like i've used multi-sig on like a bunch of my favorite wallets um and and then specifically like going back to nunchuck because nunchuck was the one that was in the trucker convoy um uh, debacle or whatnot and they it, they have collaborative multi-sig which means that it's multi-sig across different people different parties in the app and they have a chat window where they can jump in and sign together it's so slick it is so smooth i love it it is so fascinating like it is the interface i mean th there's still some clunky things in the sense that like keys are a little bit unintuitive like if you don't know exactly what you're looking at you might be like a little bit confused but as somebody who knows bitcoin and knows multi-sig it's fluid it's so awesome um and there's just incredible potential to just have a chat window where like I'm, you know, let's say I'm in like a chat with my brother, with uh, you know, BTZ sessions in Canada, with uh, uh, Gigi in Europe. I don't even know where he is these days. Um, but like we've got like four or five people just in like a chat window, and we've got like a four or five or a three or five multi-sig together because we're working on a project or something, and. We need to release the funds. I would literally sign a transaction. I would post the details in the chat. Like, like it would it would be signed as like a it's like a built-in thing, right? Like um you you have this like block and like here's the transaction details, here's the one of five signatures, and then I'm just like, all right, guys, like approve this and we'll get moving forward with the project and we'll rent the space or we'll do the video work or whatever it is. And then they jump in and they're like, what's up? This is great. I'm signed. You know, session signs, my brother signs, whatever it is. And then suddenly the funds are released. You can broadcast the transaction. And nobody actually has control of the funds. Like, it is, it is truly a collaborative multi-sig. And when, when that interface gets clean and obvious, when it gets intuitive, man, the stuff that you're going to be able to build with that I just, I really think that's a hugely undervalued thing, especially when you start talking about using that model to create payment pools, to create channel factories, to, to run, um, you know, uh, hosted like, like hierarchical lightning nodes and running nodes and uh, uh, partnering and doing sub wallets for other people in your community for doing the kind of Uncle Jim setup. Uh, and what Galloway Money is doing. Galloway has raised like a bunch of money. Uh, a Nidig is working on some things like that. There's just been a bunch of different companies that have made this their focus. And there's just a lot of building happening on this front. Um, and it's just awesome to see because these are the tools that are going to be open source. 
and available basically everywhere in the world. You know, like this is an open system. So anybody and everybody who builds any of these tools anywhere in the world become available for every other country and any other country to adopt it. Suddenly all they need to do is take these tools, apply them in the same way, download them from the internet. Man, are they going to need this stuff. Um, and I, I'm really excited to see this benefit, particularly, particularly the smaller countries and the third world that have been left out. Not only left out, but pushed out, trapped outside of this entire realm of development. And as they start to build these tools and adopt these standards, man, I feel like that momentum is just going to explode. Um, Turkey, uh, Turks have like piled into Bitcoin uh, and also stable coins. They've piled into Tether a lot because of the plunging liar I talked about, like them as being, you know, one of the many currencies. Unfortunately, many currencies that are doing consistently worse than Bitcoin even during Bitcoin's bad days. And I heard, I uh, saved like four or five different stories about uh, Russians who, after, after the sanctions got dropped down, is that they just did not have access to money. They were not able to send any money overseas. The difficulty of getting anything into or out of the financial system that they had to turn to Bitcoin because there was just nothing else that did the job. And again, this is, God, I can't tell like, how many times like this is reinforced is that like when the shit hits the fan, Bitcoin is like the only thing that works. And it just keeps working. And as we move into this environment, deeper into this environment, um, I think that value proposition will get clearer and brighter. Uh, you know, Russians and Ukrainians found that shit out just a couple of months ago. And there's a lot, there's a lot of, there's a lot of states. This is, this is also something that's just really good for decentralization in general, is there's a lot of states pushing back against the federal government. And this is really exciting to see because I, I talk about this a lot from, you know, this is my inner libertarian, um, uh, coming out, but that I I talk about how I think the balkanization of America, balkanization of the world, is actually the best outcome here. Is that rather than recentralizing and falling into these massively controlled centralized fights, these these conflicts between which giant centralized system is going to win out over which giant centralized system is that if we actually balkanize, if we split up the, those large systems because they have become unsustainable, well, then the wind is essentially out of the sails of the massive societal shifts and controls that they're attempting to enforce. So the Chinese social credit system, you know, the one saving grace there is that China is communist and they're in a hell of a messy financial situation, same as we are. So eventually it's unsustainable. The question is how bad does it get before it collapses and how and how does it collapse and what gets built up in its place? Um, or do they crack down worse? You know, does, do they collapse 
inward, so to speak? Did they collapse into the social credit system or split out of it? And I, I don't know. It's going to be a crazy, crazy fucking time. And, you know, without Bitcoin, all of that would just be utterly hopeless. Because the social credit score is is the ultimate end game for a permissioned value system, digital value system, is that if everything is run by banks, by third parties, by central entities, then there is no escape. And literally everything can be permissioned. You, you can have to earn your right to normal life if you manage to wrap all of normal life into a digital system, a centralized digital system. You know, if you can go day to day with, you know, a couple of dollars in cash and go and buy stuff at a store and you have change, they can't lock you out of that. They can't say your social credit score is too low, therefore you can't give somebody this $10 bill. But if they make that $10 bill digital and it's not an open, decentralized, censorship-resistant network like Bitcoin, but it's $10 in a permissioned banking network, well, they can just take away your right to buy fucking food and make you earn it back by deleting that tweet where you criticize the government. And this isn't some like distant dystopia. This is happening in the UK now. This is happening in Australia. People are getting, police are going to, to doors of people and showing them printouts of things that they tweeted and then arresting them. That's cr how, that's crazy. That's absolute lunacy. You think that's not going to blow back up in somebody's face? You think there's not going to be a wash back in the other direction? And that's mean, it doesn't mean it have to be a good response, but it will come back. The question is how bad does it get before the tide comes back in? And how many avenues around these things do we have? I think the only peaceful transition is the ability to ignore them. And that's what Bitcoin gives us, is the ability to route around them. That's how you avoid conflict. That's how you, that's how you enable a peaceful transition, is you simply leave their influence. You leave their sphere of control. Now, that doesn't mean they won't try to get violent, but it protects you from that potential violence. Being able to take back your sovereignty and your privacy is going to change how these political conflicts play out. And when you have, when you have an asset that could be worth millions, billions of dollars that you can store in your head and walk across any border, man, it's going to change that game theory. And I hope, I hope it plays out well. It looks like it's, I mean, it's trending bad at the same time that it's trending good. <laughs> you know, there's, there's this one era, there's this one uh, uh, zone of influence and this kind of parallel economy that is moving in the right direction. Development is moving in the right direction and growth is happening and adoption is happening. Uh, both from an ideological standpoint, but also just from realizing that we need to get out from underneath the the control of the institutions, of the apparatus that is, right? Of the establishment as it is today. But at the same time, the establishment is getting brazen, is getting 
you know, is starting to put its hands around everybody's throat and squeeze just a little bit harder and a little bit harder. So at the same time that everything is getting worse from the establishment, from traditional institutions that are losing restraint and basically just taking all the power they've thought they had for a long time and just exercising it unilaterally and just believing fully that they are above the law and kind of getting away with it. Um, while they're getting worse and more violent and more controlling, at the exact same time, our avenues... Granted, we have to learn these tools and we actually have to use them, and most people are not. They don't even kind of understand that this dynamic is even playing out. But there is a huge portion of the population that is beginning to see through this. You know, the for better or for worse, I mean, like, Joe Rogan is the most... essentially the most popular media show in the world i think like he gets more viewers or listeners per episode than any primetime television any major cable news network and russell brand is basically that like like these people are actually asking questions about the establishment are recognizing the incredible corruption openly talking about their crimes and the incompetence and failures of these institutions that they have never had to face. They go into these press conferences just getting softball questions that they wrote for the press ahead of time. And they control the camera, like who is allowed to let, uh, be let in, who's allowed to ask what questions. That's not an in that's that's not journalism. It's a joke. It's become a giant political circle jerk. But that is finally beginning to get undermined. And, and I, I, I'm happy about that momentum. And I think Bitcoin and an alternative infrastructure and an alternative money is going to be absolutely critical to that transition. And I think the last couple of years have been pretty amazing in watching the dominoes slowly spread out and begin to fall on all of the fronts. And then to watch... Pro, watch a development happen finally on so many of these things that we've been trying to build for so long of decentralized social media, decentralized um, uh, monetization of, uh, you know, of podcasts or whatever, like the streaming 2.0 or the, the podcasting 2.0 and the uh, streaming sats. And Synonym, I'm still so excited about Synonym. Uh, uh, with slash tags and the ability to uh, to create that web of trust uh, design. I constantly am trying to consume anything and everything that happens with Synonym. With TBD, with Jack and Square, or excuse me, Block, and them basically making a full-on focus on making Bitcoin the center of the, you know, the, the native monetary network and system for the internet. With Intel entering the mining space with their own with their own chip that is very comparative. With uh, uh, I think it's Samsung's new three nanometer chips and their first major was it Macrobit? Ah, crap! I can't remember the company and I don't have it saved in front of me. Um, but their first big customer is a freaking Bitcoin miner, of course. Um, or somebody who is making like an ASIC chip. Excuse me. The impervious browser, 
and the the continuous growth and adoption of the Lightning Network. Lightning Network has had such a year, such a year. It's been so awesome. It's so crazy how much I was not able to do with Lightning a year ago that I can do now. Um, and like my like all of the major services, the major finance, the major like banking stuff that I do, uh, the all the the quote unquote peer to peer apps, like the the payment apps, like I use Strike and Cash App now. Everything's Bitcoin and Lightning now, and that was not easy to do two years ago. Like all these services were not there. Like my only my banking is Fold, which gives me sats back on everything. I've got like nine million sats just stacked from buying my normal shit just using their debit card. Um, and you know that's the closest. That's the close. I don't even think of that as like fiat banking. I think of that as like my my Bitcoin fiat, right? It's it's my fiat that pays me Bitcoin because you know fiat deserves a Bitcoin tax or a Bitcoin subsidy to make me use it. This is all like new stuff and it's so much easier and more available than it was. Um, you know, Taproot, Taproot for crying out loud, Taproot was, uh, was activated in November of 2021. It's barely been any time at all. And there's been a lot of, uh, uh, development and like new things being created with, uh, you know, there's Taro where you can have, uh, you can have stable coins. You can have like tether, uh, centralized dollars, uh, issued by some central entity, uh, actually held in like a taproot tree so that there's like no on-chain footprint, uh, and you can exchange these things. You can exchange them over lightning. That's crazy to be able to use the lightning liquidity to move dollars. I mean, you know, feel however you feel about centralized stable coins. Obviously it's centralized fiat. All fiat is. So why would it be any different on Bitcoin? Um, but that's a big deal, particularly in an environment where uh, fiat currencies are in battle. They are in contest with each other. I think that is a big development, and to just brush it aside is like, oh, it's fiat. Like, fiat has a much bigger network than Bitcoin right now. Fiat is the monetary network, right? Like, so the one that being able to facilitate, become the back end, become the Linux of... Uh, the fiat infrastructure, I think will actually, I think will embed Bitcoin into a place of irreplaceability, a position where it is required, it is necessary for the fiat system to keep working because Bitcoin is what makes it work. And I think something like Taro is kind of the beginning of, of watching that sort of thing come to fruition to see huge updates in innovation in the fiat banking networks that only happen because of Bitcoin and the Lightning Network. Um, and then you've got like DLCs, then you've got, uh, there's taproot payment codes. So another really exciting thing with, um, with privacy, there's still just a ton of stuff. There's, there's an endless amount of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> that I could go through. Um, Intel announces Argo blockchain. Uh, Grid will be purchasing their new mining trip uh, chips. Um, Lightning network capacity 
um, massive growth in the Lightning Network capacity. I've read uh, the, this is already kind of out of date, but the State of Lightning Network uh, report from Arcane Research, so good, so good. You got to go back and check that out if you haven't. But I wanted to finish this out with a little bit of news on the political front, and this happened pretty recently. In May, Bukele met with financial delegations, with representatives of the, the treasuries, of central banks, of 44 different countries in order to talk about creating a different international standard and creating tools and systems of financial inclusivity that are not available today. He said in a tweet, quote, Tomorrow, 32 central banks and 12 financial authorities from 44 countries will meet in El Salvador to discuss financial inclusion, digital economy, banking the unbanked, the Bitcoin rollout, and its benefits in our country. This included representatives and uh, delegations from central banks in Egypt, uh, in Jordan, Nigeria, uh, the Dominican Republic, Angola, Ghana, Namibia, Uganda, the Republic of Guinea, uh, Madagascar, Burundi, Haiti. Like, this was a huge list of entities. And it's exactly what we've talked about, is countries that have had little control and felt like they've had little autonomy and have huge unbanked populations and need a tool, need a way to get out, to break the trend of this, that loans from the IMF have never helped. In fact, have on so many different occasions made the situation worse. And very recently, the president of the Central African Republic stated, Bitcoin is the blueprint for the new monetary system. Think this is the beginning of a trend. It's going to be incredibly interesting to watch unfold. As I've said a couple of different times, I think Central America, South America, and Africa are kind of, Africa in particular, I think is kind of a sleeping giant in this. There's so much potential. There's so much room for growth. We're talking about countries that could leapfrog and see 40 or 50 years worth of development smashed into 5 or 10 years and that do not have all of the same political and financial, financially controlled baggage that Western nations have, particularly around the monetary system. I think Bitcoin is going to play a massive role in these places and, and put specifically... It, it could allow them to create their own international infrastructure that works better, faster, at lower cost, with higher assurances, and without having to ask the permission of any Western nation at all. And in a world where the monetary regime is being questioned, is, being, is collapsing, and where we are experiencing open currency war and the attempts of build back better and, you know, the uh, a great reset from the IMF and World Economic Forum 
and the establishment of an ulterior, uh, a contesting world reserve currency through BRICS nations. And our future is increasingly uncertain. And we do not know who the winners are going to be in this battle of trusted entities and trusted platforms and permissioned and trusted infrastructure. There is nothing that could be quite so powerful and valuable in that environment as something truly trustless, decentralized, neutral, and impossible to shut down. That is Bitcoin. That is where we are, and I think, man, I am bullish as shit on Bitcoin. Uh, This is a wonderful opportunity if you've got any dry powder to stack some more. But uh, if you've lost faith in Bitcoin or you're feeling bearish or that Bitcoin is in a worse position than it was a year ago, I'd argue you haven't been paying attention. So we'll close this here. I'm losing my voice a little bit. We're an hour and 40 minutes. Good God. And there's still just so much stuff that I just skipped over. We'll have to bring it back in some other episodes. There's just too much to talk about. Thank you to Fold. Thank you to Bitbox. Thank you to Swan Bitcoin. Thank you to everyone who listens to this show. Don't forget to subscribe and share this out with everybody you know who needs to hear it, which is everybody you know. (laughs) All right. Thank you guys for listening. I'll catch you on the next episode. I got Gigi's piece on the way. By the way, Gigi's got another good one, so get ready. Stay subscribed. Check that RSS feed. Listen to Bitcoin Audible, and I'll catch you on the next one. Till then, everybody, take it easy, guys. You have been listening to Bitcoin Audible, a 111 production. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.